This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. They also have a terrific backlog of courses you can watch, including JavaScript The Good Parts, Build Web Applications with Node.js, AngularJS In-Depth, and Advanced JavaScript. You can go check them out at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jabber link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash JavaScript Jabber. This episode is sponsored by Rackspace. Are you looking for a place to host your latest creation? Want terrific support and high performance all backed by the largest open source cloud? What if you could try it for free? Try out Rackspace at javascriptjabber.com slash Rackspace and get a $300 credit over six months. That's $50 per month at javascriptjabber.com slash Rackspace. This episode is sponsored by Widgmo 5, a brand new generation of JavaScript controls. A pretty amazing line of HTML5 and JavaScript products for enterprise application development in that Widgmo 5 leverages ECMAScript 5 and each control ships with AngularJS directives. Check out the faster, lighter, and more mobile Widgmo 5. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 152 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel we have AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from Provo. Jameson Dance. Hi friends. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I'm calling in from a cafe. Uh, we also have two special guests this week. We have Nick Schrock. Hello. And Joe Savannah. Hi. Did I say your names right? I hope I did. Yep. Yeah, uh, Savona, yeah. You, you got Savona. it. Savona. You guys want to introduce yourselves really quickly? Sure. My name's, uh, as he said, um, Nick Schrock. I've worked at Facebook for a little over six years. And I'm from Minnesota originally, and I live in the Bay Area. Uh, and I went to the University of Michigan. And uh, I'm Joe Savona. I grew up in Jersey. Went to NYU, uh, lived in Japan for a while, and I've been at Facebook for about six or seven months now. So, Nick, you worked at Facebook before they were beloved for their open source software releases. That's, that's true. Is that like a, I've always wondered, is this a conscious, like strategic decision Facebook has made? Or does, did this just kind of happen that they started releasing a bunch of stuff that other people used? Uh, it definitely is a conscious strategic decision. The business value of it is not the most obvious thing in the world. It's more of an instinct that it's the right thing to do. And we've even open sourced some of our hardware specs as well. I guess it comes from a number of things. One is just kind of like part of, you know, it kind of like fits with our mission of making the world open and connected. It also makes Facebook a more technically fun place to work. And it also kind of captures the fact that, you know, most of the relationships in the technology industry are not zero sum. So, in effect, if another company does better because of this open source software, it's kind of better for everyone. It also kind of, you know, hopefully if we do our job well, establishes us as an industry leader and also helps a lot with recruiting. So, there's a lot of goodness there. The funny story, I was actually pretty strongly against the open sourcing of React at the time because I thought it was a distraction and essentially it was the most wrong I've ever been in my career. <laughs> uh, so I've definitely had to eat crow on that subject. 
So I jumped in and I ruined it. Do you want to tell us what we're supposed to be talking about today? Yeah, we're talking about two subjects. Yeah, one is GraphQL, which is effectively our data access layer that drives our mobile applications and increasingly all of our uh, or a lot of our software. And then I'll uh, pass it on to Joe for to discuss what Relay is. Yeah, so the other subject is Relay, which uses GraphQL, and it's basically a declarative data fetching layer uh, for React. So it's really, you can think of it as uh, React for your data. So what React does for you is Relay does to the entire data access layer. There's a little bit of information about Relay during ReactConf, but it, it still seems pretty sparse. Can you describe a little bit more what it is? Yeah, sure. So, uh, like I said, it's, it's really all about declarative data access. And that means both getting the data that your application needs, uh, fetching that from the server, as well as handling uh, writes. So, in a little bit more detail, we found that like traditional approaches to data fetching were really error prone. So, a number of things can go wrong. Typically, uh, for example, you have to specify all of your data fetching logic in one place. So, to fetch data for a page, you did in one place fetch all the data for the page and then pass that down throughout your React view. To each, you know, to each component. And what that meant is that adding a property to a view, so let's say you had some profile picture view, uh, and it's used all over your application, right, because you always show users, and you want to add one property. That one change would cascade throughout your entire application, and it made it really hard to reason about that profile picture component. Does it have the data that it needs wherever it's used? We don't know. Um, and so we, uh, really moves the data fetching logic declaration into the component itself. So it's really component-based data fetching you can look at a component, understand what data it needs to render, and know that it will have that data, but when it renders. So it's very easy to reason about your application, and it's very difficult to end up in an inconsistent state. In fact, Relay largely prevents a lot of the, the, the errors that are typically occur with data fetching. So in some ways, this is kind of a unique problem to React because of the emphasis on like a top-down data flow, right? Where you construct your app as a hierarchy of components, and you pass things down through the hierarchy. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's probably a similar problem for any type of system that uses uh, that has like any sort of a reusable component. So, for example, you can imagine Angular with directives; the same problem could occur. You know, any any time that you're splitting up your rendering, have reusable pieces, uh, reusable views, this problem can occur where you make a change to some reusable component, and it need it assumes that it has some data, and you may have a page that doesn't actually supply that data to the component correctly. Yeah, I'll actually expand on that too. I would say it's not particular to React. A lot of the ideas for Relay actually come from our PHP code base. We have a system called XHP, which is analogous to JSX. Effectively, you can you know express markup, and then it essentially at runtime becomes an AST that you can manipulate. And then we have a system called Preparable XHP, which effectively co-locates our data fetching with our XHP, which determines our UI. So I think it works with kind of any system where you're expressing your UI in hierarchical views, which is a lot of systems. So you've described the concept a little bit, which sounds awesome because I've, in using React, I've definitely encountered this problem of I need to add one piece of data to this thing way at the bottom of my hierarchy. Now I I have to pass it through like 10 different layers to get it there. Can you talk a little bit about how it solves that problem? Yeah, so basically queries in Relay are co-located with the components. So just the same way that uh, React Native kind of showed that we have, we can add styles, like the particular styles that a component needs to render. We're really expanding upon that idea of like, what is a component? And we realized that the data definition has to be co-located, right? It's, it allows you, it's the one thing that was kind of missing in order to really fully reason about 
by co-locating the queries with the component, we're able to, so, for, so we get this, this local reasoning as far as actually getting the data there. Because of the queries are defined using GraphQL statically, so each component defines its normal render methods and lifecycle methods, but it also has the queries that it needs, and those queries are relative. So, for example, I talked about the profile picture example. Then you might have a friend list example where each friend list item composes the profile picture, and its query composes its child component's queries. And so what that means is if you, as you walk up the tree, you're actually able to have a single object that represents the entire query for the full subtree without having to render at all. So we can statically say, for this route, we know exactly what queries we need to execute, execute them in a single pass, a single round trip to the server, and then render the components. I think the other piece which kind of makes us all fit together is a more in-depth understanding of GraphQL, which is really important. So it's pretty distinct from most traditional ways of accessing middle tiers. And so it is not REST, and it is not custom endpoints, which most websites, as far as I know, are built on. It actually, you can express your queries at field-level granularity, meaning the server effectively publishes a type system. So it publishes the fact that, oh, there's a user type, it has such and such a fields. And then within Relay, you can refer to those fields individually. And effectively what happens in Relay is that a centralized, fairly complicated component you know, descends over the static hierarchy of views and sucks out the declarative data. And then that is particular to each component and then assembles it all for one query to the server. And it is this type system which kind of makes this all work in terms of in this component, fields X and Y are queried and the client specifies that and it's not encoded in the server, which is what distinguishes it from REST and from most REST systems and certainly from custom endpoints. So what, what do these queries look like then and how does it know what types are available? So the server determines what types are available. So the, the general development model with GraphQL is that a server-side dev or a client dev who knows how the server works adds a field to these type definitions on the server, which defines the type system. Then we can actually query that type system, meaning that you know the traditional example of GraphQL is that you have a root call like node of four, and then you can open a curly brace and query X, Y, and Z. In the same way, you can actually query the types so you can say like type of user and then fields and name and whatnot. And using that tooling, the client software knows what types are expressed on the server. So that was one aspect of your question. What was the other question? How are the queries structured and how does it know what types are available? So uh, you, you talked a little ahead. bit about how, how you know what types are there, I guess. Yeah, it's effectively through tooling, right? So we have it because we can access the type system programmatically. We can actually build fairly sophisticated tooling. So one of the more powerful tools that we have available is called Graphical, which is effectively a IDE for this query language. So at every step in the query, it's a hierarchical query. That's, Just go ahead. to be clear, it, kind of, it basically, when you're writing it, it looks like JSON. So you basically, the query looks like JSON you basically just it, it's take the JSON that you'd want to receive and take the values out of it, and so just leaving the keys, and that's and you're, what you're left with is GraphQL. Yeah. So at, at a high level. Yeah, no, that's very useful context. And then at every level, as developers are typing in this tooling, kind of you know a type ahead pops up, and you select what query in that type system. We also expose documentation and whatnot, so we surface that. And so that's generally how you know what you can query. 
Yeah, and so what this means is that, for example, if, if when you're working with Relay, if you were to add a field that doesn't actually exist, so you're uh, you're you know you're doing back to that profile comp uh, profile picture component. If you attempted to add a field that doesn't exist on profile picture, we know that from the type system, and so we can give you immediate feedback. Right, we don't have to. You don't even have to run the application, the compiler, like the, where we're transpiling the JavaScript, and say, "Oh, look, you're accessing an, an invalid type here. Did you mean this field?" Right, like I, just today, I typed URL instead of URI and got immediate feedback that I was using the wrong field. That sounds magical. It feels kind of magical when you use it. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to so, make sure I understand. Do you pull those definitions down to the client first, or they're just kind of implicit? No, we pull them down from the client. So and you pull them down during the development process. So this is like a development time tool. Okay, when, so you just kind of bundle it with your JavaScript while you're developing it or something? So, yeah, so what happens is when you're writing a Relay component in JavaScript, we, uh, you know, we have a whole bunch of transpilation steps, right, for like ES6 classes and other features. Um, and one of those steps is looking for embedded queries. And the, the syntax that we're using is uh, kind of an extension of the ES6 uh, template literals. And so we just have a, a specific tag notation, our uh, GraphQL, um, which we were able to say, oh, okay, we know that given this position in a React component, this is going to be a query. Um, and we basically analyze that, take the query that you wrote and the schema and, 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 you know, annotate that and say, oh, okay, this field has, you know, this extra metadata. And we basically replace in the transpilation step that string literal with objects representing the query with these extra schema uh, annotations. So we have just the minimal set of the schema information that we need to make that query work at runtime. We don't have to bundle or do any kind of, you know, runtime loading of the schema or have any extra metadata that we don't need. Yeah. We defer all this work about verifying the type system whenever possible to the development stage and not at runtime. So effectively every developer who's uh, working on the system has a local copy of the current state of the schema, which has all the types, all the fields and all the behaviors encoded within that schema. Okay. That, that kind of makes sense. Another thought I had when I first heard about Relay and GraphQL is it sounds really awesome if you're Facebook and it already all exists. But I mean, we don't have GraphQL. We don't even really have, it's still kind of closed source. It seems like it's being open sourced. But why do I care about this as someone who doesn't work at Facebook? So I would say there's two reasons for that. One is it's like, I think it's a, at least relatively novel idea. So, you know, we hope to influence the way people think about this stuff. But two, you know, open sourcing this is in our roadmap. So we can't really promise any scheduling on this, but we really want, you know, me and another one of my collaborators is effectively working on an open source reference implementation of the type system on JS. Uh, we hope to be able to stack that on top of various storage engines. So, you know, it doesn't really make sense to open source Relay without GraphQL because the, the systems are tightly coupled, at least in terms of the client-side type system. So right now, it, from your perspective, it is a bit vaporware, but you know, we hope to make it actually open source some real software that implements at least a subset of the system. So you're trying to get people excited about it before you do that kind of? I'm curious, what kind of applications do you envision people really building with this then? Is it the single page apps that we see some of the other frameworks being used on, or is this going to sit on top of it or underneath it or to the side of it somehow? Yeah, I think we really, I mean, we have applications. So uh, we recently released uh, a mobile ads manager application for iOS. And as we, we, we talked about that, that's actually completely built using React Native. And all of the data fetching for the entire application is powered by Relay. So that's like a really rich interactive application with really, you know, really great gestures, very responsive. And the fact that all the data is able to be fetched by Relay is kind of like, I think, a really great testament to how powerful the framework is. 
Um, we also have a, an example, uh, kind of an experimental version of the Facebook newsfeed, um, which is rolled out to a small number of users, and we're expanding that. And that that's all built on Relay for the web. Um, so it really is pretty powerful. And like those are you know kind of two different styles of applications. One is kind of like more of like an information management, like dashboard type of thing where you're managing your ads. The other is a newsfeed, kind of you know obviously standard uh, you know newsfeed type application. So it kind of shows like there's lots of different things you can do with Relay. Um, I think, you know, and I, I've worked with other frameworks uh, outside of React in the past. And like this is definitely solves like a lot of the pain points that, you know, UI developers on any platform face when trying to access data. So I think that, you know, once we have an open source GraphQL implementation, which we're, as Nick said, we're working towards, um, I think that once you kind of see like the power of this and, you know, once we're able to open source it and kind of give it, uh, show, show examples more, I think that, or I hope that people will kind of really see the power of, of these two, of, you know, GraphQL and Relay together. From my perspective, I'm not on the Relay team, so I get to brag about it a little more. For most of the consumer apps that I interact with, I think Relay would be a pretty good fit. You know, especially if you think about it in terms of stacking on top of React Native, uh, in terms of, you know, the apps that you interact with a lot. You know, just for example, that Ads Manager app that Joe is referring to, originally this was, you know, people thought it was going to be an 18-month project. You were going to have to staff it up with a large number of iOS experts and whatnot. And instead, we were able to kind of, you know, we had like one iOS expert on the project and essentially some JS, uh, you know, some people with JS domain expertise. And that worked really well with ads because a lot of their tools are built in React. And we were able to build, you know, what we think is a pretty high-quality native experience in single-digit months. So. You know, we're really trying to dog food this and prove that this stuff is real. Um, and it's really been effective for us internally so far. I mean, just for myself, like if I was to go and write another app, you know, outside of Facebook, I would want to use Relay. I mean, like it really is, it really does solve the typical problems. Like, you know, you always are faced with, okay, I know what I want my views to look like. How am I going to get data into this, right? As someone who knows JavaScript and, you know, is can do, you know, uh, server-side or full-stack development, you still have to think about how am I going to get data into this, right? And so Relay basically just completely solves that problem. Like it removes the question of how am I going to get data in and out? How am I going to get my rights to the server? How am I going to deal with like optimistically updating the UI and rolling it back? We've taken an incredibly large class of problems and baked them into the framework so that things like scroll loading are a simple change query params from five to 10 and we do the minimal amount of work to get you the five more that you asked for, right? That could take a ton of work in other frameworks. Just making sure that you have the data. You, you might overfetch, right? Or miss some data. A lot of those problems are really complicated and we've just solved them. And so it's, it's an abstraction that you don't even have to think about. So I know you've talked a little bit about GraphQL compared to REST. Do you think that GraphQL is just a better way to build your backends, no matter how they're being consumed? It sounds like GraphQL was used before Relay existed. Is that true? In just some native yes. iOS apps? Absolutely. So essentially the entire surface area of our iOS and Android apps access our data model via GraphQL, and that predates uh, Relay. And they're not even JS, right? So they don't have Relay. So it's definitely used outside the context of Relay. But so in some ways it makes a lot of sense for Facebook because I imagine if you had like the documentation for the, the Facebook REST API for internal applications would be a million billion pages long. So... I could see how it'd be a lot easier for native developers that aren't working on this on the back end at all to just mm-hmm. say like here's the data schema I need the data that looks like this partially because of scaling problems with the engineering size or engineering team size 
Does this apply to smaller companies, maybe that don't have the same problems with large API surface areas? Yeah, I, I, you know, I never claim that any system is universal. So for applications and systems where there's a small surface area and a custom endpoint gets what you want, and also that that uh, data model doesn't change that much over time, uh, GraphQL is pretty much, it, I would consider it overkill for that. It is a heavier weight system than REST or custom endpoints. But I also think changing applications that have an install flow from the user's perspective opens up a new set of problems. What I mean by that is take, for example, our release cycle. Facebook releases new apps. Like the main app is launched every two weeks and we commit internally to supporting the clients for at least two years. That means if you think about it, there are 52 extant versions of the app in the wild. So, and that's very difficult and that's not even counting hot fixes and dot releases. So if you think about it, if you change a custom endpoint or what a REST endpoint returns, you have to kind of keep in mind the 52 clients that existed before. And what changes about GraphQL is that the data you fetch is actually embedded in the client. So it kind of flips that on its head. And I think that is a new way of thinking about it to the JavaScript community who is used to being able to re-push uh, new JS whenever they want. Sure. Yeah, you um, just so that's one of the problems that it addresses. But go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I was just agreeing with you. Yeah, you just deploy your app and deploy your servers, and it's fine. So I'm wondering, do you have a GraphQL driver for JavaScript and another one for iOS? Or... Absolutely. So we have client software for both iOS and Android. And with this system, you, know, you effectively have the type system locally, so we're able to synthesize a ton of artifacts within iOS. So, for example... When you run our client tooling in iOS, so we kind of do the simple thing of emitting a bunch of effectively structs, because these are strongly typed languages, that represent all the data in our system. So it serves as kind of an IDL, similar to Thrift or Protocol Buffers or any similar system. But we're also actually able to synthesize persistence. So one of the major projects of iOS a couple of years ago was replacing a system called Core Data, which is Apple's provided system for doing persistence. And it just wasn't scaling on a number of dimensions to fit the needs of our applications. So we were effectively able to completely replace that system via this tool chain, right? Because you have the entire type system, so you can, you know, synthesize and emit persistence backends for this or backends that interface well with that type system. Are you talking about code generation? What do you mean when you say synthesize? Yeah, code generation combined with systems that are used to interact with that code that is generated, if that makes sense. It kind of does. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, how does this apply to JavaScript, which doesn't have a strong type system? I mean, obviously, right, there's no, uh, no type system. You can imagine doing some things with flow, uh, you know, flow typing. Um, but really what it, what, where it comes in is when you're declaring your data dependencies in a relay component, having the GraphQL type system means that you get much faster checking of are you attempting to access some data that doesn't even exist, right? Are you accessing a field that doesn't exist on that type? And, and that's, you know, that's really what, what, where this comes in handy. I mean, so it, I think for me, it feels like the, that, you know, that's where the type system really comes into play in terms of actually as a, as a client developer is just quickly finding mistakes. What really is powerful is what Nick talked about with the single endpoint and not having to have multiple endpoints with multiple versions. You don't have to think about that, those, right? You think about what your data, what your, what data your application needs. And then 
we can do a very, very efficient query for that data. So one, one problem that this solves, uh, for example, is, you know, if you're using something like Flux, um, Flux is a really great model. And, like, you know, it's kind of showed, I think, the, the power of like a one, you know, one-way data flow. And we basically just extend that. And so we're able to do a very, very efficient query, right? So people are, a lot of people are experimenting with isomorphic Flux and making Flux work on the server. Relay works seamlessly on the server. So we have uh, in our experimental version of the Facebook newsfeed, we can render 100% server-side and send down HTML. Um, we have a mixed mode that we call preload, where the server can do the data fetching uh, and then send back the results to the client and then have the client render. And we can also do full 100% client mode where all the data is fetched from the client. And so it allows us, it allows you to kind of find like the right balance for your application. If you care about SEO, then you can use server mode. If you, if it's not important for your application, then you might use a preload or client mode. You might choose to do different things based on the user's network speed, right? You might discover that, oh, they have a slow network connection, so we'll change modes. You know, we haven't experimented with all of this stuff yet, but we have those three modes working and we're trying to find the right balance for our application. So it kind of using this tool chain, because you're just going through a single access point, you can kind of do more things with it, right? You can instrument it and see which queries are slow. How can we optimize them? You know, see which pages are taking a long time to load. Maybe we should load less uh, less information up front in order to get a, you know, a faster response time. It's just much easier to do extra things on top of that than if you had a multitude of, of JSON endpoints. That would be much harder to you know think about in aggregate, right? Yeah, and also for server-side efficiency concerns, it also provides an extremely powerful leverage point for all of our infrastructure devs to optimize our backends. So, for example, we can attribute cost to every individual field in the system and then understand what things are expensive and what things are not, and, uh, things of that nature. So I think I understand the, the basic idea is by laying out the data in each component that it needs when you examine the whole tree of your application, you end up with this giant kind of nested object that describes all the data that all the components need. That's exactly correct. And then you send that off to the server, you get back that nested object, and then the client, there's a chunk of code that lives on the client that knows how to pass all that data back down to the objects that need it, right? Yeah, exactly. So, right, so that's kind of like the first part of the flow, right, is we, we say, okay, you're attempting to go to this page, let's say it's a, it's a story, you know, a newsfeed story, we can collect, statically collect, without having to render anything. We can uh, build up a, a complete object that represents the query for that entire view that we, we want to render. We can also look at what we have, what data we have cached locally, right? We might say, oh, because you saw this story on the newsfeed, we actually already have the information about the story. We just haven't fetched comments yet. So we can say, oh, well, we don't need to run this entire query. We can actually diff that query, find the minimal set that we actually need taking, basically subtracting, kind of like with the virtual DOM where we, we do a diff of what updates we need to, uh, to form on the UI, we can do a diff of the queries. So taking the, the query minus the things that we already have, send the minimal uh, set of query fields that we actually need to the server, fetch those, we merge them into the store, so now the store is aware of like the, those new comments, and then we can render efficiently. And when we render each component, we actually read uh, basically a set of the data that uh, only the data that the component actually asked for is available as props. So for example, if you have two components that are both rendering, uh, receiving a story object, maybe one of them is querying for the story's text, one of them is, is going to show the story's author, those components will only get the fields that they asked for. So you can't accidentally reference a field that you didn't explicitly ask for. Even though the system knows that, for example, we have a story author, your component didn't ask for it, and so, so you can't reference it. And so this helps prevent bugs where you're accidentally just getting some data 
and then somebody else deletes it, and then now your component stops working. So it really isolates the components and ensures complete modularity. So I guess I still have some questions on how the client piece works. Sure. In normal React, you would kind of pull some data from a store, and then you'd manually pass it down as props. Yep. And it sounds like Relay takes care of a lot of that for you. Yeah, exactly. So um, does this mean that you're handing off the responsibility for constructing the hierarchy of your application to someone else? I guess I don't understand how you, um, in practice, okay. how, how it looks to build an app out of this if sure. you're not manually passing stuff down. Okay, so so um, just imagine the case of a top-level story component, and it, that component you know renders the text, and then it also uses, let's say, a comments list, which has you know renders um, a sequence of comments, right? So just uh, three levels, a story that renders comment list, and each and that renders comments. So you still write your you could you, you start it's just they're just regular React components, and they're kind of you would you know do your standard. Um, React.create class or use the ES6 uh, class syntax to extend React.component. You'd write your standard React class and then you'd export, module.exports is going to be relay.create container. And so you basically, we are using uh, what we call container classes. So rather than mix-ins where the data kind of comes in from the side, what we're doing is basically kind of creating a higher order class. So you define your basic class and we basically wrap that. So if you actually look at the React tree, that for every every one of your application comp- uh, components, there's a wrapper uh, relay component. But of course, that doesn't actually get reflected in the in the UI, right? Your UI is still going to be just story comment list comment. But conceptually, there's a container that actually does the job of fetching the data and passing it in as props to your component. So, for example, the story the story component that uh, that the story relay component is going to get the ID of the story, and then relay will say, oh. I have an ID, I have the query, it will go read the data for that story ID and with that query and actually go and get the story that you asked for and give that story object as prop to your component. So what you get is just a regular JSON object with the fields that you'd expect based on the query. And then you would say, okay, so you'd say story.comment and pass that to your comment list. And then the comment list really component will go and say, okay, now I know what story I'm supposed to get. I go get comment list, it'll go and fetch that and then give the comment list JSON, you know, just a standard JavaScript array of comments. So your regular React components just receive plain JavaScript objects and Relay does the work of actually reading the data out for you. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. So you still can write pure components to just take in props and return yep, exactly. stuff. Absolutely. And then you wrap them in something else that does the data management stuff. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And reuse existing React components. Yeah, that's that's where I was getting nervous. Like, wait a minute, do I have yeah. to change all all my existing? Yeah, yeah. that was uh, a fantastic question. Yeah, it's a great question. Why? Thank actually... you. Oh, I'm flattered. <laughs> yeah. So just and just on that note, in our um, relay version of the Facebook newsfeed, um, so we have a story component, right? And we it can render all the different types of stories. But we also have a share page where I can share a story with with people or with a group, and we actually reuse the same story component on the share page, even though it's uh, client-generated data, right? This is not, it's not, we're, it's something we're about to write into, into the store. It's not in Relay yet. Um, we can reuse that and basically pass in, you know, existing just standard JavaScript objects into that component, and then we can reuse all these Relay components. So, yeah, you can still use, you know, you could, like, gradually take your components and, like, migrate them over. We haven't, we don't have, like, a full story worked out for the migration path, but definitely you don't have to go and rewrite everything you'll be able to re, you know, largely just kind of annotate your existing components and just add the queries that they need to work. Sure. One more question is kind of a broader one. 
So one of the themes of React has been put more stuff in your JavaScript, put your kind of templates in your JavaScript, put your styles in your JavaScript even. And this is taking it one step further and saying put your data needs and your data fetching in your JavaScript. Is this too much stuff for one thing to manage? Like, are you worried about, I don't know, too many responsibilities uh, instead of separating concerns out among different things that are responsible for individual pieces of them? My response to that, and it's a very common question and a good one. I imagine there's of, a lot of like hands raised in the air and flailing around when people ask this question a lot too. Like it seems, right. it, it just seems crazy at first glance. Like, okay, you put your templates in there, you put your <laughs> CSS in there, and now you're putting your like API access in there too. Right. So, in my opinion, a lot of the reaction of that is kind of reaction to previous horrors. You know, when people think of not separating concerns or having things in the same file, they kind of imagine a templating system where inline you're kind of doing SQL queries and then building HTML strings and it's all interleaved and awful. And trust me, I know all about that because when I got to Facebook, a lot of the code is structured like that. And the reality is, is that in every application that I've ever worked in, all those things that you describe, styles, layout, data fetching, is coupled. That is the reality of these systems. And so we're not, in a sense, artificially coupling these things. We are acknowledging a reality that already exists. But the key thing about these systems is that they do separate the concern of actually executing how these things are materialized. So, for example, Relay co-locates GraphQL, which is simply a declarative JSON-esque hierarchy for determining your data fetching. And we have a centralized component that iterates over everything and then smushes all together and issues it to the server. That's the current implementation. There's nothing preventing us from executing it in a completely different way. So, for example, we're experimenting with systems where instead of doing a request response format, we're instead streaming updates to a local cache that is a source of truth instead of the server. So it does separate concerns, but in our opinion, it separates the correct concerns, if that makes sense. And we're able to do that by having these centralized engines that kind of go around and suck out declarative parts of these systems and then can execute them in ways that are completely independent of each other. Yeah, I, th I think it's interesting. I mean, along the lines of what Jameson's saying, I mean, this is the issue that I have with Active Record in Rails, is that mm -hmm. it blends the data fetching with the business logic. And in a lot of cases, you really don't need it to be, and it complicates things because it couples things together that aren't always intelligently put together. And, and I guess the worry that I have with the issue that Jameson brought up here with it doing too much is that, you know, you may be making assumptions that work well for Facebook and Facebook's apps, but not well for mine. That is always a risk. And to connect it back to your first question about why do we open source, I think this is one of the reasons, you know, uh, this group that produces a lot of these centralized abstractions is called product infrastructure. And I was there from the beginning. And we're kind of, you know, there's the Facebook bubble. And then within Facebook, we're kind of a bubble within a bubble. Because for most of our history, we were simply producing software that only our internal developers consumed. And open sourcing is a really good way to verify that the inmates aren't running the asylum, so to speak. Hmm. And so it's a really that's good check true. step. So, you know, that's one of the reasons why we're super excited to open source GraphQL and Relay. Actually, you know, just to get personal for a bit, I was planning on going for a three-month leave from the company and kind of coming back and doing something else. And then the React conference happened. And I was just blown away 
by the positive feedback that GraphQL got. And you can't open source Relay without GraphQL. So it really re-energized me. Um, and so it's really exciting. But kind of to, to your point, like, you know, that's why we open source stuff. And we might make wrong assumptions. And we might have made mistakes, and it's software. We can do anything we want effectively, so we'll go and fix them, you know? So. I really like the approach. I mean, this is right along the lines of where you see some of the other successful open source projects going, where they realize that they've made some assumptions, and some of them have totally validated, and some of them haven't. And so they, you know, they iterate to the next version, and even though it, it introduces breaking changes, it makes a big difference as far as what you get in the end and how easy it is to, to put things together. Yeah, I want to ask another question. Mostly I use REST APIs at this point. I think this idea is interesting. One thing I see with REST APIs, and I'm worried that you're going to have the same issue with queries at one endpoint, and that is that uh, the, the APIs generally reflect the internal structure of the application instead of, or the back end instead of actually addressing the needs of the front end. So I use Rails, and just as an example, I mean, you can generate a scaffold that effectively gives you CRUD access to the database, which isn't necessarily what you need. Instead, what you may need is, I need to charge a credit card, or I need to add a comment, or things like that, that may or may not fit CRUD, but, you know, it's it's an endpoint, and, you know, a concern for the front end is I need to add a comment, not I need to create a comment entity in my system. So I'm wondering, are you concerned at all that GraphQL is just going to be a way for people to reflect their, their backend constraints or their database constraints into the front end? The short answer is no, because I violently agree with your concern, and the system was designed with that in mind. So let me expand on that. I think ORMs are one of the worst abstractions foisted on software ever, meaning that you start with the database, and then you effectively synthesize an object layer, which is then if you pass around the objects around your UI, it is just a leaky abstraction. Famously, it was called the Vietnam of computer programming. Uh, you don't want to get in and you can't get out. So GraphQL was really designed to, you start with the view and you express the query as naturally as you can from the view's perspective, and then you work backwards to the technology. It's kind of like how, you know, Steve Jobs always said this, may he rest in peace that you always start with the customer experience and then work backwards to the technology in the same way our customer experience is effectively the front-end developer or the product developer more generally. In terms of it reflecting the back-end constraints, uh, one of the reasons why GraphQL worked is that for years we had been building up an abstraction stack that was internal to our PHP stack, but it also was built with that philosophy of starting from the API and then working backwards towards the technology. And, you know, GraphQL is a very, effectively a fairly thin stack on top of that uh, business object layer, if that makes sense. But really, you know, we really try to focus on the customer experience. In this case, it's the front end or product developer. You know, every other query language that I know of effectively starts from the storage backend and then, you know, creates an access pattern that is very congruent with that storage backend. You know, the prime example is SQL. Right. Just like that is not written with the consumer in mind if you're building complicated products. It is built to optimize the back end. I'm just like, I clapping, completely agree. Clapping to myself. I know. <laughs> in this closet at work. Well, it's interesting because it's, it's easy to do, right? 
you have a structure that's been handed to you, and so it's easy to mirror it. You know, it's it's harder to think about, you know, coming from the outside in sometimes because you don't know what the intermediate steps are, and a lot of people don't feel empowered to create them. Yeah. And, and, and I know, think there are, I, are, I like you know, the approach. There are real place. constraints in this, right? Like, I would be lying yeah. if the back-end constraints didn't leak somewhat into the views, but the way that gets exposed is that there's effectively a relationship between the server-side and client-side developer in this system, meaning that the entire system has kind of a style to its API, but it's not super generalized, meaning that the client developer can only access what the server developer has explicitly stated is allowed. So the most simple example is that we have an order by directive where you can say, oh, I want these things ordered by X. It's not like we explicitly don't allow you to order by arbitrary columns or arbitrary fields, pardon me. The server developer has to specifically say, oh, you are allowed to order by this because I've thought about it. We have it indexed. We use a custom backend, which you know serves as index. So it's not like a hyper-generalized query language. It's a way for the server to publish its capabilities to the client and do so in a way that the client feels like it's uniform and also kind of has this more like view-centric API, if that makes sense. So to be honest, I'm a little lost, and most of that's my fault because I wasn't... This is a very difficult system to explain without visuals. If we showed you the IDE, you would effectively instinctively understand it, I think. So it's, it's hard to explain over audio. Yeah, well, and... So one question I have then is, because you were talking earlier, like that part I really connected with well when you're talking about the ORMs and, you know, how they're very specific to a backend. And I, I totally agree. I think that sometimes ORMs are more of a pain than they're helpful. And sometimes they're very helpful. But so with this, what adaptations of backends can you have that this can be a good fit for? Or That's a very general question, which I think is difficult to answer. You know, uh, I guess I can only speak from our experience that all that, you know, we have lots of backends. We have kind of our main store, which we call Tau, but we also have specific backends for Newsfeed and for Timeline and oh, many other products. And effectively, we've just figured out a way to make it work for each one of those systems. And I don't think there's really a, a th- like a, a, a Tau, just double use the word, of that process. You know, we have a business object layer. We have effectively within PHP a query-esque API. And if you can make it work on top of that, you can make it work in GraphQL. I'm not sure if that answers your question, but well, you know, essentially any API which produces lists and objects can be mapped to this relatively readily. Okay, and then you were, I remember you were talking earlier about the relations and how like you explicitly define customer dot orders or, or something and so that you can't accidentally reference something that you didn't explicitly allow. So yes. in, in terms of relationships that are updated frequently, is this still a good fit or cause most of Facebook is not really relationships as much as it is logs, right? I mean, well, maybe I'm generalizing there. But I think of like the feeds. They're just append-only logs. So that is the, that's the product you interact with mostly. But I actually would, you know, most of the data that I think about day-to-day is more like in terms of relations. You know, one way you can kind of frame what Facebook has done 
over the past several, you know, many years is effectively we've tried to schematize the all the data in the world as graphs. So the graph is kind of like our fundamental abstraction, and you have nodes and edges, and effectively this system, a way you can like think about GraphQL is it's a way to explore arbitrary subgraphs of that global graph. And relationships, such as friend relationships, all the invitees to an event, all the fans of a page, you know, we have like gobs of them. And they're effectively places where you go from one object and fan out with n edges. And the system is just ideal for doing that, actually, and was kind of designed to do that. Uh, ironically, actually, the log-based systems, we kind of have to, you know, more bend over backwards and do awkward things in order to make those kind of fit within the system. That makes sense. So is this a uh, way of accessing data going to replace OpenGraph as the Facebook API? Or is it still just going to be used internally and open source for people to use other places? So those are really two different systems. The The use case of accessing your own data is in general just very, very, very different from accessing an external data. So I can't really envision a world where our external developers access the data in the way that we do it. You know, most of our external developers are interested in injecting data into the system. So to create feed stories and distributions and also to pull data out of the system to essentially accelerate the distribution of their apps. No one really has any particular interest in rebuilding our newsfeed as we display it because it is incredibly complicated. And I wouldn't see the upside of doing that, if that makes sense. So it's a very different use case. So GraphQL will be a system that you can use your own, you know, initially that you can use that to access your own data. Now, you can imagine it becoming kind of a lingua franca where if everyone exposes GraphQL across the, across their systems, you could think about it in a way as a generic way for people to access other people's data. And, you know, frankly, it's kind of a superset of the capabilities that, that OpenGraph provides in the Graph API. But certainly in the short term, GraphQL will be a system that companies and Facebook use to access their own data. And then we can work from there. And the other question I have is, are you, so as far as security goes, I mean, I don't want just anybody formulating GraphQL queries to send to my system. Is the structure inherently more secure or do you just secure your endpoint the same way you do it with anything else? So OAuth, authentication headers, yeah, we just use existing authentication. Um, yeah, basically, we uh, we effectively grab an access token from our external platform, and we ensure that it's from a Facebook app, and then we kind of piece out, and then we just execute the string. So GraphQL is an explicitly higher-level protocol than HTTP. It is an application layer protocol. That's one of the things I find actually strange about REST is the coupling of HTTP and an application-level protocol. So we were, you know, the authentication mechanism is completely orthogonal to GraphQL. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. So this is kind of a broad question. It seems like part of what you're trying to do is propose, well, you said it, part of what you're trying to do is propose a replacement for REST for some applications, which is yeah. almost more of a social problem than a technical problem because there's so much investment in education and tooling and, and, and just developer mindshare around REST. Yep. <laughs> are you, I mean, what, what do you do to overcome that? If you say GraphQL is like objectively a better solution technically 
Like, that doesn't make anyone switch. That doesn't make anyone create the rails of GraphQL that magically generates all your... Well, False. Your if it's empirically point. better, I'm on board. <laughs> you you will go it alone, AJ. GraphQL. So, I mean, I think about this a lot personally, because a lot of my career has been convincing people within the company to use new stuff. And I think there's a few things. One, the value add. It has to be a step function that is worthy of changing the way you think. You know, I think actually React is a pretty good example of that, where we turned a lot of best practices on their head, and we're getting a lot of adoption, uh, even though it's a big shift, because a lot of people perceive that it's better. I also think there's kind of a, with these systems, you know, you kind of have to think of it almost like a little startup, where you have to provide value from day one. So there is a transaction involved where, like, you know, they're they're getting something, but it's also incurring a cost in terms of learning. And the benefit at every step along the way has to be clear. And then the other thing with these systems is you have to provide an incremental approach if you want them to be used in existing applications. So I think that's one of the questions that we need to answer as we go along the journey of open sourcing this and figuring out its compatibility with a REST API. You know, I have ideas along that front, but it's kind of early in the process. That is a fantastic answer. I like what you <laughs> said about the benefit has to be there at every step along the way. I feel like I've used technologies um, of all kinds where there's this promise of like the great productivity paradise that will only come if I just break through this awful barrier of madness that I can't get through. It's not, yeah. I mean, it's not madness. It's just, I don't know it. And then, yeah, there's once, like a lot once, of, like once something know, clicks, also, then you'll find it. Another phrase we it. use internally. Oh, sorry, I, I uh, talked over you. No, no, that was it. Okay. Another phrase we use internally is what we call the progressive disclosure of complexity, meaning that you have to present the system in such a way where you kind of get consumable bits as you go along the process and also understand the value at each step. So I think a lot of the ways systems become unapproachable is if they start out with like a hyperform, at least this is the way I think. Some people think differently, but the way I think, and I think a lot of developers think, is that if you approach a system and you like start off, for example, with the complete formal specification of a programming language, I don't have the mental capability to consume that and understand all the benefits. I need like use case and starting with the simple thing and be like, oh, I get this. Oh, I align with the system's values. So I think a lot of it is the way you present the information as well. And to ensure that the simple things are simple and the complex things are possible. So there is kind of an artistry to doing this, in my opinion. You know, and you know, luckily we've had a lot of practice internally. Because the way Facebook works is that teams are empowered. We have small teams that are empowered to use whatever technology they want, which sounds awesome. But there's actually downsides in that affecting change across the system is just a hell of a lot of work. Because you're effectively dealing with respect to this relationship, people who are kind of an external entity. You know, we don't work where we have some CTO who says, you must use such and such a technology. We don't want to work in a place like that. And I don't think really anyone does. Um, well, I shouldn't say, you know, I never say never or always. Uh, but the majority of developers that I interact with do not want to work in a place like that. So, you know, we've had a lot of practice doing this. We've been able to do it, you know. React is like a great example. You know, it took a long time to get internal adoption. It basically started with one developer building a framework to drive a single type ahead. And that was years ago. And, you know, there's been a lot of missteps along the way, and you just have to, you know, 
learn from them and move on. Yeah, it makes me think of my, my struggles trying to learn Haskell, where I see smart people that tell me it's so amazing, and then I sit down to do something, and I just cry and cry. It's, yeah, it's definitely you run not... into the monad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Like, okay, I can write like, a quick sort that sorts this list of integers in memory, but I can't like make an HTTP request. But Haskell has very different design goals. So, so are there problems that aren't well suited to something like GraphQL or Relay? Yeah. So, for example, uh, games might you probably don't want to write your game using Relay and GraphQL, right? Um, I mean, it's it's well suited to applications that have their data in a graph format, which we think is a pretty large percentage of the typical types of applications that we write as front end developers or just UI developers generally on on you know native platforms. But certainly, if if you have a, a an incredibly highly interactive uh, application like maybe a stock trading app with thousands of updates coming in every you know millisecond, maybe that I don't know you might want to have like something designed specifically for that. Although depending on the data, the amount of data relay and GraphQL could probably handle it. But definitely games are kind of not suited. But like most applications are lists of lists that traverse a graph and relay and GraphQL really handle that case very, very well. But again, I'm sure there are cases that do not, you know, we're not claiming to cover every single application case and we're just trying to find like the main common case and what those pain points are and solve those. Sounds good. Well, um, I don't think we have any more questions, so let's go ahead and jump in and do some picks. I have James, if you want to give us some picks first, I will. Jeremy. Yeah, I'll do it. So I have two. One is a new album by a band called Purity Ring that I really love. It's called Another Eternity. I think it came out last week. It's the, a female vocalist in front of just this really deep, like, synthy electronic music. It's great. And my next pick is a blog post by my friend J.T. Olds called What Writing a Unicycle Can Teach Us About Microaggression. Um, it's kind of about sexism and, and the small ways that little actions that don't seem a big deal to the people in the majority happen constantly to the people in the minority. Uh, the example that clicked the most with me was um, I have a name that's easy to make dumb jokes about, Jameson Dance, right? Like, for years and years growing up, I got, do you like to dance? And each person that made that joke to me, it was like the first time that it had occurred to them, and they thought they were making a joke. But to me, I'd heard that millions and millions of times, and I got so sick of it. I got over it, but it really bugged me when I was a kid. And that can be the same experience that someone who is a minority or a different gender has in technology, when they just get little comments that don't seem like big deals to the people that are making them, to the, the person on the receiving end, because they receive them so often. Uh, it, it has a much bigger effect. So it was a really well-written post that helped me understand things in a way I didn't before. Those are my picks. All right. AJ, do you have some picks for us? I should. You know what? So here's what I'm going to pick. I pick this every so often, but I'm picking it again right now. Overclock Remix. I just love listening to chiptunes and video game remixes, and if you don't know that about me, you must not have heard more than three episodes of the show, but I do, and so I... I pick Overclock Remix, and all of their videos are on YouTube, and I'm listening to a pretty dang good playlist right now. So, well, not right right now, but yes. And that's all I'm going to pick right now. I'll pick more next week. That's it. Done picking. Over it. All right. So the first one I have to pick is an app on my iPad, and basically what it does is it allows you to share your screen or basically have it act as a second monitor on your Mac. So if you have an iPad and a, like a MacBook Pro or a MacBook Air, 
Check out Duet. It just connects to your uh, Mac. You have to install the app on your Mac as well. But, uh, yeah, then you just tell it to connect to the Mac, and it does all the magic stuff, and then you have two screens. I'm sitting in this cafe right now, and I'm using that. I've also been playing this game for a while, and I'm not sure if I mentioned it on the show before, so I'm going to pick it again. And that is called Summoner's War, and it's a lot of fun. Basically, you get monsters, and you fight them against other people's monsters. and it's, So it's one of those kinds of games, but it's, it's, it's pretty cool. I'm enjoying that a lot. And, yeah, that's all I've really got. Joe, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, so um, I'm going to pick uh, a book that I really really changed the way I think about, I don't know, just people and interactions in general. Uh, it's called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel uh, Kahneman. I'm not sure about the exact uh, pronunciation of the name. Uh, but yeah, Thinking Fast and Slow. And it talks about things like if you ask a person to read uh, read an essay about old people, and then time them as they walk down a hallway, they'll walk more slowly. And things like confirmation bias, and it's just really uh, interesting generally. Um, a lot of like just really, really cool things about human psychology uh, that you wouldn't think about. Definitely recommend it. Second one is uh, just learning a new language in general, whether it be a, a spoken one or a programming language. I'm semi-fluent in Japanese, and it's changed the way that I speak and write English and the way that I think about programming languages too. So... If you haven't tried becoming bilingual, maybe give it a shot. I like the pick of a human attribute. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's an All ambitious right, one, I, too. It demands a lot of effort yeah, from the people good. that accept it. I have two picks. One, I like the music stuff, so I'm going to do a music pick, and then a product. So music, one of my best friends has always been raving about this artist named Nicholas Jar, and he produces really unique music. And this week I finally heard the song where I got it. He did a... 12-minute remix of Florence and the Machine, uh, a new song by her um, called What Kind of Man, and it just blew my mind. So that is my new favorite jam. And then the product is called a boosted board. Have you guys heard of this? Nope. So it is an electrically powered longboard, and it is, one, the most so fun, and two, has actually completely transformed my relationship with the city. So I live in San Francisco. So one, I'll explain how it works. It's an electric longboard, and you have a control on your hand. And when you engage, you can go really fast. So it has a maximum speed of 22 miles an hour, which if you think about it on a longboard, that is ridiculous. You basically feel like a superhero. But the thing that really makes it work is that it has regenerative braking. So much like a Tesla or a Prius or any electric car, you can slow it down without engaging brake pads. It's just the, the electric motor does it. So you can like, you can slow down and stop on say like a, a 10% downgrade. And so it's amazing. First of all, it's just kind of hilarious to see people's reaction to this thing because you're just at a stoplight and then you engage and then you're going as fast as cars and accelerating faster than them. So that's pretty awesome. And two, you know, it is amazing because you show up to a spot instead of having to lock your bike or park your car, you simply pick up your board and walk in. So it's really opened up the city for me. Like, for example, there's a commercial district about 0.7.8 miles away from me. There's some hills. So that's like a big investment to go down and get a cup of coffee or something because, like, that's like a 12-minute walk or something if you're rocking really fast. Now I just hop on my boosted board, and I'm down there in, like, three minutes. And then I just walk in, have my cup of coffee, and I can leave. So it's just an amazing product, and I'm a huge advocate of it. Sounds like it avoids the segue problem of looking like you're just a jerk for being on it, too. Yeah, I mean, that's all the eye of the beholder. <laughs> a lot of people, uh, 
a lot of people don't like uh, longboarders in general. There's this hilarious Onion article about a social media expert in a longboard. It's just this expletive-laden thing about how that person should just die. So a lot of, and that's hilarious. You should Google it. But I will say definitively, you look cooler at least than you did on a Segway. Yes, cooler, cooler than a Segway. That's yeah, the bar. Yeah, not a high bar, but a bar. Yeah, yeah, it is yeah. A bar. I'll leave it to the general population to judge how cool you look on a on a boosted board. My mom certainly thinks I look cool on it, so that's something. Oh, there you go. That's all that matters. <laughs> that's that's important. Because sometimes yeah, I, moms, they love you enough to tell you what's what. Right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, um, I don't think we have any announcements or anything, so uh, we'll just uh, wrap up the show. Thank you guys for coming. Yeah, thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Have you noticed that a lot of developers always land the job they interview for? Are you worried that someone else just landed your dream job? John Sonmez can show you how to do this with the course, How to Market Yourself as a Software Developer. Go to devcareerboost.com and sign up using the code JJABBER to get $100 off. This episode is sponsored by React Week. React Week is the first week-long workshop dedicated entirely to learning how to build applications in React.js. Because React is just the V in MVC, you'll also learn how to build full applications around React with the Flux architecture, React Router, Webpack, and Firebase. Don't miss this opportunity to learn React.js from Ryan Florence, one of the industry's leading React developers. If you can't make it out to Utah, they're also offering a React Week online ticket. Go check it out at reactweek.com. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Do you wish you could be part of the discussion on JavaScript Jabber? Do you have a burning question for one of our guests? Now you can join the action at our membership forum. You can sign up at javascriptjabber.com slash jabber, and there you can join discussions with the regular panelists and our guests.